Welcome to Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. I've been thinking a lot about Gandhi these days, and I thought the best topic for my first Pete podcast would be uh, to reflect on Gandhi as we mark the 150th anniversary of his birth on October 2nd, 2019. I think he's certainly the greatest person of the last few hundred years, but it's amazing how far we have fallen from the great heights he set. I was thinking the best way to honor Gandhi is to reflect on his life and his lessons of nonviolence so that we can try to practice nonviolence better in our, in our own lives and do our own part to create a more nonviolent world. After you know studying Gandhi my entire life and I read the complete 100 volumes of the collected works of Gandhi and at least 25 biographies for my anthology, Mohandas Gandhi Essential Writings, one of the first things I learned is that uh, Gandhi was not born Gandhi. He had to become Gandhi. And I think that's an important lesson, that we all have to become our best selves before God, to become the peacemakers we were created to be, to become the people of creative nonviolence that the God of peace calls us to be. Gandhi said he did it, in his words, through daily prayerful discipline. In other words, single-minded, concentrated effort to transform himself into a person of total nonviolence. And I think that's the goal for all of us. So I thought I'd run through the basics of Gandhi's life, and then I'll offer 12 lessons that I've learned from studying Gandhi. So just to remember, he was born in 1869 in India. He went to London as a you know, 21-year-old to get his law degree then got a job as a lawyer in South Africa. And he had his big conversion during his first week in South Africa, you remember from the movie, when he was thrown off the train for sitting in the whites-only first-class section. And he said it was the most important event of his life because what he did was he sat in the train station, which is outdoors, in total terror all through the night, knowing that by the time he stood up, his life was going to go one way or the other, and he, he had to decide for himself how was he going to respond to this injustice. And he decided, I'm going to spend the rest of my life fighting racism, the beginnings of apartheid in South Africa, and all injustice and violence. So he forms a movement in South Africa. He starts studying and practicing nonviolence. He makes up this phrase, satyagraha, or truth force, truth force, or the pursuit of truth and organizes marches and civil disobedience, and hundreds go to prison with him to resist the unjust laws. And along the way, in those 20 years in South Africa, he formed an interfaith community, built an ashram, began to live in total poverty and simplicity, started meditating every day, started two newspapers, began to read the Sermon on the Mount and the Bhagavad Gita daily, and get this, professed 14 vows, including vows of nonviolence, truth, poverty, and respect for all religions. A little aside here, I went to India years ago with Arun Gandhi, Gandhi's grandson, who was raised by Gandhi, and we spent a month traveling through India to all the Gandhi places, including his famous ashram, and then the Aga Khan Palace, where he was imprisoned in World War II, and the Birla House, where he was assassinated. I also went to South Africa for a month and made my own little Gandhi pilgrimage with some friends. 
to Durban to see his first ashram, and to Peter Maritzburg. I know I'm a Gandhi fanatic here, I'm confessing it. We went to the train station, and it's a little old goofy orange brick British building. It's the exact same building built around 1850 that in the middle of the night, when the train stopped there, Gandhi was thrown off into the platform. It was really one of the highlights of my life was we got there, we went inside, and it's a little tiny train station, and all the walls were covered with gold plaques and frames all about Gandhi and tributes to Gandhi from all over Africa and the world. And we, my friends and I, went out and prayed right there on the platform, which is still there today, that we too might spend our lives resisting injustice. Well, he had a lot of great victories in South Africa, and around 1915, he moved back to India and started calling for nonviolent uh, demonstrations against British injustice and imperialism, and then the national strike, which caught the imagination of the nation, was about 1919. And by 1922, 50,000 people had been arrested and imprisoned for nonviolent civil disobedience against British imperialism in India. That's, think about that, because there's no telephones, there's no cell phones, there's no internet, there's no television. How did they even communicate? In 1924, the British arrested Gandhi and sentenced him to six years in prison for protesting the British Empire. Eventually, he was released, and he began to concentrate a little bit more on his daily prayer and making the connection between the politics and spirituality of nonviolence, and then building a constructive program to serve the poor. And he went on many dramatic fasts to confront religious-based injustice. And then in 1930, he led his famous march, the 70 trained nonviolent people on a two-month march from his ashram to the sea, where he bent down and picked up salt. He made salt out of the ocean water, breaking the law, because only the British controlled the salt. And this was an unprecedented civil disobedience campaign, which caught the imagination of the whole nation and inspired everyone to start making salt. And he was arrested, and 100,000 others were immediately arrested. And basically, British rule ended the minute he picked up that salt. But he kept teaching nonviolence and provoking the British in and out of prison and going deeper into prayer. One of the things that I found interesting was in 1933, he and his wife one day announced to their stunned ashram community friends. There were 400 of them by this time. And they all loved Gandhi. It was a lot of fun to be with. That he said, we're too comfortable and Ba and I can't take it anymore. So we have to be poorer, and we went and studied the map, and we're moving to the worst place in the whole country, a village in the center of India called Warder, where only untouchables were allowed. And we're gonna build a new ashram there and make it a model village of peace. And we're gonna form it around the spinning wheel. That, to me, is so radical, because he was in the 60s when he did that. Of course, World War II came along, and the British just arrested him without trial, or charge, basically put him in prison for life. By 1942, 300,000 nonviolent resistors were imprisoned in India for protesting war and British domination. Think about that, that happened in the United States, totally nonviolent, and his wife died in prison. That's something I've spent my whole life pondering 
because I've spent time in prison too, and the thought of dying in prison was so powerful. And he was very ill when that happened, and the British were so scared he was going to die, they released him. Now, if you're doing the math with me, that leads up to August 1945, when the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Within the minute of hearing the news, he started speaking out against nuclear weapons. Until the hour of his death, every single day, he spoke out against nuclear weapons. Now, I think this is very powerful. What? Because he's also a spiritual leader, but he's condemning nuclear weapons. You don't think of a spiritual leader as someone who's done that. That's had an impact on me. In 1947, Britain left and gave independence to India. But civil war broke out, and the country split into India and Pakistan, and all hell broke loose. Literally, one to two million people were killed. And Gandhi went on several incredible fasts to the death to stop the killing, but he considered himself, by the time of his death, a real failure because so few people accepted his ideal of nonviolence. That's an important lesson, too, one that Dr. King went through and probably Jesus, too. On January 30th, 1948, as he walked toward his evening prayer meeting at 5 o'clock at the Birla House in New Delhi, he was assassinated. He was 79 years old. So here are some 12 basic lessons as I think about this great life. Number one is the most important. The one thing Gandhi taught over and over again, morning, noon, and night, in everything he ever said and every word he ever wrote, I'm trying to build this up to get your attention, is persistent, consistent, steadfast, dedicated, committed, faithful, relentless, truthful, prayerful, loving, troublemaking, illegal, active, creative, provocative, public, daring, nonviolence. It's nonviolence morning, noon, and night with Gandhi. He was in pursuit of total nonviolence. Now, here's one of the most astonishing quotes, which I only discovered a few years ago. I really invite you to ponder this one. Some ways, I feel like it's the most important thing I want to share. Devotion to nonviolence is the highest expression of humanity's conscious state. Wow, that just kills me. I'm going to say it again. Devotion to nonviolence is the highest expression of humanity's conscious state. In other words, the height of human enlightenment, of the spiritual life, of being a human being, is total nonviolence. Is he right? Because it sure seems like there's millions of religious people who are going deep into practicing their religion who'd be happy to kill a lot of other people. And I don't say that flippantly. I, this is something that I've pursued for 40 years. Even Buddhists might work with the Buddhists. I know many people who sit in meditation for hours every day and told me they'd be happy to drop a nuclear bomb and supported the war in Iraq, just as so many Christians do, so many Muslims and Jews do, supporting violence and yet having a religious practice. Gandhi's saying the height of human consciousness is total nonviolence. That If you want to go to God and really being the best human being you could be, try to be totally nonviolent. Because then you're really going to need God. If you're not nonviolent, if you're violent, who needs God? you got your guns and your money. Here's his definition. Nonviolence means avoiding injury to anything on earth in thought, 
word and deed. Well, how's that going for you? No injury to anything or anyone on earth in thought, word, or deed. Here's another quote. Nonviolence is the greatest and most active force in the world. Wow. One person who can express nonviolence in life exercises a force superior to all the forces of brutality put together. Wow. My optimism rests on my belief in the infinite possibilities of the individual to develop nonviolence. The more you develop it in your own being, the more infectious it becomes till it overwhelms your surroundings and by and by might oversweep the world. That's just lovely. So Gandhi insisted that nonviolence begins with the basic truth that every human being on the planet is your very sister and brother, that we're all equal. I would widen that to say we're all one, not only with every human being on the planet and every human being who ever lived, but actually all the creatures and all creation too. That makes sense for me if you're a God of peace creating this beautiful world of peace and nonviolence. We're all one. And because of that, you can never hurt anybody, you know? much less kill someone or work to destroy the planet. So nonviolence is not passive. It's no longer just a tactic or strategy. It's an entire way of life, but it's active love in pursuit of that truth of our common unity. And it stands up and resists all the structures of death and evil. And it persistently reconciled with, reconciles with every human being on the planet. We're always reconciling um, and practicing, I just love this, unconditional non-retaliatory universal love with one catch. There is no cause, however noble, for which we will ever again support the taking of a single human life. We just don't kill people anymore. We don't kill people who kill people to show that you shouldn't kill people. And not only that, we give our lives to stop the killing. And not only that, we're not even going to retaliate with further violence if we're threatened or inflicted with violence as we struggle for justice and peace. So Gandhi says nonviolence begins in our hearts and um, where we renounce all the violence inside us and it leads to practicing meticulous nonviolence in all our relationships from our families to our colleagues to everybody in our city, everybody in our country and everybody in the world and then you organize it on a large scale through grassroots people power movements as he showed to get the British to leave as Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement showed, as the People Power Movement in the Philippines showed, as Archbishop Tutu in the churches of South Africa showed, and so forth and so on. Gandhi said that if you can harness the power of nonviolence, it becomes contagious and can disarm all the nations. After studying this for 40 years, I really believe that. You know Why? Because I think this is the methodology of God, the power of God. This is the way God created reality to work. It only works if everybody's nonviolent and trying to practice nonviolent, and then it's more powerful than all the nuclear weapons. If you understand nonviolence as um, means being the ends, like we're already there in the presence of God and one another, things like that. Um, in my book, The Nonviolent Life, I propose that Gandhi's holistic nonviolence demands three simultaneous attributes. You have to do all three. Number one, you have to be really nonviolent to yourself, to ourselves. 
think a lot about that. Secondly, you have to be really nonviolent to all people, especially the people who are difficult in your life, and the creatures and creation. Meticulous interpersonal nonviolence from now on. And third, at the same time, you have to be part of the global grassroots movements. You can't just do one of these, and you can't just do two of these. You have to do all three. That's the height, the high bar that Gandhi set of total holistic nonviolence toward yourself, toward all others in creation, and being part of the movement. Okay, that's my first point, and it's a doozy, but uh, for, for really understanding Gandhi, it means going as deep as we can into total nonviolence. Second key thing I learned is that Gandhi insisted is that nonviolence is at the center of every religion because it's the way of God. What? Every religion is nonviolence, period. So every religion is doing everything in the world it can to ignore that one basic truth and calling of itself. I know that sounds a bit cynical, but it's, I think it's very true. Nonviolence is the heart of all spirituality, and it's at the heart of what it means to be a human being. Or to put it another way, to be godly is to be nonviolent. To be human is to be nonviolent. The God of nonviolence created humanity to, be, humanity to be a family of nonviolence and set us on this journey of nonviolence toward the kingdom of God, which Gandhi called nonviolence. Here's an exact quote. The kingdom of God is nonviolence. That's why I consider him the greatest theologian, because no one in history has ever said that. So he's just constantly challenging our false image of God, our hypocrisy and idolatry, as if God were violent, and saying God is, can only be nonviolent. That's what makes God God. And that the future of faith and religious um, institutional faith communities is nonviolence and interfaith nonviolence and discovering the common ground of nonviolence we have together. These are lovely teachings. He's saying Islam is about nonviolence, Judaism has shalom, it's all about nonviolence. He's embodying Hinduism as nonviolence. He's pointing out the Buddhists teach infinite compassion toward all living beings. But he particularly insisted that Christianity is all about nonviolence. He said Jesus was the greatest person of nonviolence in history, and the only people who don't know that Jesus is nonviolent are Christians. And, you know, I read all those essays and letters around his whole life, and he's constantly pondering the nonviolence of Jesus. And in the end, he always cited it to justify what he was doing. Everyone's saying, You're breaking the law. And he's going, Jesus broke the law hundreds of times. Well, people didn't know that because they weren't reading the Gospels like he was. And in fact, I discovered that Gandhi read from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every morning and every evening for the last 40 years of his life. He said the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest teachings of nonviolence in history. And I want to be a person of nonviolence, so this is like my handbook on how to be a nonviolent person. It's, just, it's incredible. So... Um, it's a challenge to break through the stereotypes of the time and the fundamentalisms in all our religions and to honor the nonviolence in every world religion, but in particular, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Did that come out right? Uh, and to really pursue the nonviolence in the religion that we all grew up with. Three, 
Gandhi spent his life in pursuit of truth. Can't talk about Gandhi without talking about truth. I don't know anybody in history, except perhaps Jesus, who talked about truth the way that Gandhi did. He said God is truth. And then, being Hindu, he reversed it and said truth is God. And then he, he was trying, he said the word nonviolence, and this is 1904 in South Africa, he was saying the word is so clumsy, ahimsa, you know, from Sanskrit and the early Hindu scriptures. We need a better word, and he actually had a contest, and then he gave himself first prize, which I thought was very funny. And the word was satyagraha, satya meaning truth, graha, clinging to, grasping onto truth, the force of truth. None of it really unpacks this new word he was trying to get, but that word doesn't work for us too. It almost really means nonviolent civil disobedience, where you're going to give your life in pursuit of truth, totally nonviolently. And it was his pursuit of truth that led him to nonviolence. And he said it was hard to describe both words, but in effect they were two sides of the same coin of life. But it led to the truth that violence doesn't work, that the means are the ends. This is where he went really deep into nonviolence. That you reap what you sow. That nonviolence is the law of the universe. That if you want a nonviolent outcome, you have to have a nonviolent means. And the deeper you go into total nonviolence, the more you will help bring about total nonviolence. And he, if he were around today, he would be calling us to engage in brand new satyagraha campaigns to abolish war, racism, poverty, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, and to work for new cultures of nonviolence. Why? Because he's saying this is the truth. And this is the truth of God, and this is what it means to be a human being at your truest self. Fourth, in 1922, when he was on trial and sentenced to the six years in prison, they call it in all the books, the great trial. Oh, gosh. He stood up in front of the judge and said, one of the great powerful teachings of all times, non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. And this is very powerful. He's saying in the past, okay, maybe philosophically, all like Plato might have said, the highest you can do with your life is to pursue the good, to do good. Isn't that lovely? Gandhi's saying things are so bad now. We have the potential to destroy the entire planet. It's no longer enough to just do good. You have to also non-cooperate with evil. No one had said that before. But that's led to Tutu's teaching that, you know, if you're silent and not speaking out against structured systemic injustice and war, then your silence is complicity. You are participating in structured evil. No, I'm doing good. I'm a good person with my life. That's not enough. That's what Gandhi said in the trial. And that's what woke up India. You know, that's what had such a big impact on so many people. You mean, because everybody was trying to do good. I mean, the Indian people, most beautiful people on earth. I'm trying to do good. That's not enough, Gandhi's saying. You have to non-cooperate with evil. And so he said to the judge, British rule is evil, and therefore I'm non-cooperating with British rule and throw the book at me. And that's what happened. So we have to reflect on that. How can, Are we doing good? And resisting evil, and that means speaking out, rocking the boat, but doing it meticulously, nonviolently. It's very powerful. Number five, 
These get worse as I'm reading through them here. They get harder and harder. That's why nobody talks about this, or Gandhi anymore. But this is what he taught. Gandhi said that the way to peace involves risk and sacrifice. Huh? Isn't there another way, Gandhi? Just as war requires killing, peacemaking requires the willingness to be killed. Just as the art of violence requires the willingness to kill, the art of nonviolence requires the willingness to be killed. In other words, the willingness to give up our lives for suffering humanity and for creation. You know, we just need to pray on that, he said. That's where you get deep into your own heart. And Dr. King talked about this every single day. Well, he's talking to oppressed people in the American South who are facing the Klan and are about to be killed. And he's going, you know, it's a good thing to lay down your life for, in love for a noble cause. Excuse me. The early Christians put it this way. If you want to work for positive social change, the only way is to participate in the paschal mystery of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. In other words, so Gandhi is saying that, and Gandhi talked about the cross morning, noon, and night, way more than any priests or ministers or bishops I hear today talking about it. But he's saying the cross is, is the campaign of nonviolence to get the British to leave. I would translate, translate that to mean today. The cross is the burden that each one of us now have to carry to do our part to help get rid of war and poverty and racism and nuclear weapons and environmental destruction. We don't want to do that, but it's a burden. That's what we've been asked to do. But as Jesus said, it's a light burden. But it means taking risks and, and even sacrificing ourselves. So you might ponder that. We don't want to practice what Gandhi called the nonviolence of the weak. We want to practice the nonviolent of the strong. My sixth point is very much like this, but it goes deeper into this, and it uses this difficult word, suffering. And I debated in whether or not to put this in the book, but you want to study Gandhi? This is what he said, morning, noon, and night. And then if you really read Dr. King, which I've also done, he talked about this, morning, noon, and night, the cross. Wow, I, it's hard even saying this. Gandhi said, if you want to be a person of nonviolence, you have to court suffering. Court suffering in the nonviolent struggle for justice. You know, in your own personal transformation and in the social and political transformation of, your, of the world. This is like politically incorrect to say today. Here's a quote. Nonviolence in its dynamic condition means conscious suffering. It does not mean, listen to this, it does not mean meek submission to the will of the evildoer. Okay, I'm going to submit. That's not it at all. It means, quote, the pitting of one's entire soul against the will of the tyrant. We're in charge, actively, quote, working under this law of our being, it is possible for a single individual to defy the whole might of an unjust empire to save honor, religion, soul, and lay the foundation for that empire's fall or regeneration. That's a profound teaching in faith. But that's the story of Jesus in a nutshell. Jesus practices perfect nonviolence, goes to Jerusalem, is a complete failure. They kill him. And he's disarming the whole world. And, um, and Gandhi's, if you can, if, as Martin Luther King said, is widening 
the way we've long perceived Jesus into seeing that Jesus' way of nonviolent love can be applied to nations and the world to disarm them. This is fantastic stuff. But it means risk. It means courting suffering. It means taking up the cross. And that's a challenge for all of us. Uh, it's not a challenge for oppressed peoples around the world because they're all suffering. But it's a challenge for us comfortable people here in North America to get on the side, to live in solidarity with the oppressed and to choose um, to risk suffering and to simplify our lives. Well, I could go on and on about that. Here's number seven. Well, with thoughts like this, this next teaching makes sense. Gandhi learned that prayer is totally essential if you want to go deeper into nonviolence. I love his simple quote, mute prayer is my greatest weapon. What? You know, if you really study him, he, you know, he didn't, he was a very devout, pious boy. And then he was this political hero in South Africa. But a lot of the change happened when he went to visit, of all things, the Catholic Trappist Monastery in South Africa, which still exists. And that's what got him inspired to form a community, to create the ashram, to start farming, and to start having his own prayers. So that, you know, after 40 years, he was doing two hours a day. Now, he's a busy guy. He's leading a revolution. But he never missed his two hours prayer. Um, then around the 30s, 1930s, he's decided to spend every Monday in total silence to, to continue to go deeper into his contemplative nonviolence and to be more peaceful and closer to God. So he's practicing Buddhist mindfulness, Christian centering prayer and contemplation. He's just connecting his inner heart of nonviolence, his public life of nonviolence, and the political campaign of nonviolence. It's all one. We can do that too. But uh, to go deep into prayer, and when you're going deep into prayer, you're getting way beyond your anger. But you're also taking in all the terrible things happening in the world today, from our own tyrant today to the, the wars and poverty. And, and we're part of the transformation that God is bringing. Number eight, this I would not have put on the list. But this was clear from my study of Gandhi and also Thomas Merton's. Gandhi was dedicated to purity of heart, which he said was at the key to nonviolence. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. I think this is about the seventh beatitude. And I've written a book on the beatitudes. It's called The Beatitudes of Peace. And the seventh beatitude, after Jesus' teachings of nonviolence, is, you know, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. And I remember in all the letters of Gandhi, he's writing to his nice Christian friends, you know, I don't, this is the one thing I can't figure out. What did Jesus mean about being pure of heart? How am I going to do that? It's lovely. Well, here's what Merton said. It was so helpful. He's just talking about purifying yourself of violence. Okay, in other words, that Jesus is calling us in the Sermon on the Mount to have nonviolent hearts like him, to have sacred hearts, immaculate hearts. Okay, that's lovely. And what I'm telling you is that Gandhi worked on this politically more than any other person, perhaps in history, after Jesus or Buddha, you know. But Merton then says this astonishing thing in his long introduction to his book, Gandhi on Nonviolence. I've spent 40 years thinking about this sentence. 
This is what we don't understand as, as Americans. The great thing about Gandhi is that his public work for peace, independence, justice was first and foremost, quote, Thomas Merton, quote, the fruit of an inner unity already realized, unquote. What? In other words, Merton's saying we all go around and we're going to impose nonviolence on them. We're going to make them nonviolent, and that's how this works. Merton said Gandhi realized that Jesus said, you're going to make yourself nonviolent, and you're going to become such an interior, if you will, explosion, spiritual explosion of nonviolence, you're going to become contagious and disarm the world. And, and Merton has that beautiful phrase, the fruit of an inner unity already realized. An inner unity already realized that Gandhi was already one inside himself. The rest of us are all divided in our inner violence. That's a very powerful teaching. And you can just ponder your own purity of heart, your nonviolence of heart. And that means letting go of our violence, handing it all over to God, forgiving everyone who ever hurt us of every wrong and allowing God to disarm our hearts, you know, because we're just um, so violent, you know. Uh, as you are, so is the world. You know, we used to, my friends and I used to protest outside the Pentagon in the early 80s, and I remember was studying Gandhi and thinking that Gandhi would also talk about the Pentagon in your own heart. Things like that. Number nine, Gandhi insisted that if you really want to be about justice and peace, you really want to be in the struggle of nonviolence, part of God's campaign of nonviolence. You have to live somehow in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. Try to become as poor as you can, serve the poor, and join in the constructive program that ends poverty and promotes justice. So we could talk about this a lot. How, I mean, like St. Francis, why he gave away his money and personal possessions. He renounced his career. He lived in a communal farm. He made his own clothes. He even cut his own hair, which left the whole ashram laughing at him. Uh, and then dressed like the poorest Indian peasants in, you know, in the handmade white cloth and had just a very meager diet of fruits and vegetables. He spent a lot of time just listening to poor people and willing to go to jail so that he could be one with the poor and the untouchables. Well, there's, I say all that because there was so much that he wrote about that, but here's one famous quote. Now, this was in a letter about a year before, no, about six months before he was killed, but for many Gandhi scholars around the world, it's one of the greatest things he ever said, and I ended my anthology, Mohandas Gandhi Essential Writings, with this quote. This is Gandhi. I give you a talisman. Now, a talisman is a kind of a, what is a talisman? It's like a, a basic motto to live by, a basic fundamental teaching or practice. That's my definition. Mind you, he's just writing this in a letter to somebody. So here he goes. Whenever you are in doubt about your life, or when yourself becomes too much with you, apply the following test. Recall the face of the poorest and the weakest person whom you have ever seen and ask yourself if the next step you contemplate in your life is going to be of any use to that person.
Will that person gain anything by your next step? Will it restore that person to control over his or her own life and destiny? In other words, will your next step, your journey, lead to freedom for the hungry and spiritually starving millions? Then you will find all your doubts and yourself melting away. I think that's a powerful teaching worthy of Jesus and one we all need to con continue to ponder. Number 10. Again, these were my lessons that I picked up from a couple of years of really studying Gandhi full-time. I was really engaged in the books. Number 10. Though he taught the power of nonviolence, Gandhi categorically rejected worldly power and in a way then advocated what appears to be powerlessness. That's a mouthful. You want to be downwardly mobile, and that includes the world's powers. That's why he was never an elected official. He wasn't a powerful person. He actually had no positions, possessions at the time of his death. And he advocated what looks to us like total powerlessness. What I mean by that? The, the powerlessness of Jesus on the cross, a total failure. And isn't that the total power of active nonviolence, which can disarm the heart of everybody in the world? And it's the way, God's way change happens. You remember St. Paul called this emptying yourself, kenosis. So what I'm, I'm saying this is because Gandhi talked about this a lot. Um, you know, about an hour before he was killed, the reporter said, well, Mr. Gandhi, what's the greatest lesson you've learned in your life? Without missing a beat, he said, have nothing to do with power. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I guess he saw all his friends become power hungry, corrupted by power as they created India and Pakistan and then civil war broke out. They were not thinking of themselves, uh, of, of the good of the people, but for themselves and Anyway, and his other phrase was, Gandhi's phrase was, reduce yourself to zero. In other words, into the powerlessness on, of Jesus on the cross, or the apparent powerlessness. You know, that's what, imagine Dr. King in prison in Birmingham, or Dan and Phil Berrigan in jail for resisting the Vietnam War, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat and in jail, she's powerless. That's where the power is. Number 11, Gandhi taught um, a very core Hindu concept, which is very hard for us Americans to learn, especially if you're involved in peace and justice. And this is back to that Merton teaching. Renounce the fruit of your action. Now, this is critically important in, in advanced active Hinduism. But I find it runs all through the Gospels too. I don't have time to get through that now, but renounce the fruit of your action. So in other words, give your life working for peace and a more peaceful world, and at the same time, let go of the results of your action. What? I've been 40 years pondering that. You're giving your life for the results of your action, and you're totally detached from the results of your action at the same time. If you can do that, it's like a tightrope walk you can be really peaceful and centered like Gandhi. Instead of being successful as a peacemaker, all you have to do is be faithful. You're still giving your life for peace. 
Instead of totally being effective, we did it. We risk the ineffectiveness of really being a prayerful person, a person of suffering love, and going into total nonviolence, which requires revolutionary patience. Very hard for us as Americans who are taught by the culture and the media and the Pentagon to be effective and have results and make a difference. That's not the way of Gandhi, and I submit it's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of nonviolence. Instead of being relevant, we practice the irrelevance of nonviolence. What do I mean by that? We leave the outcome of our actions in the hands of God. This is good. That we know if our actions are truly nonviolent, they will bear good fruit in God's own times because the means are the end. In other words, and in fact, this is what Merton was teaching, this is good news because the outcome is in better hands than ours because we're so violent. The outcome is in God's hands. All we have to do is our part for God's global peace movement. Isn't that lovely? But these are difficult teachings. Renounce the fruit of your action, even though as you give your life to nonviolent action. Okay, my last point. This is the end. And, you know, I, my friend who published my book, the anthology, the editor, who's one of my best friends, argued with me for a month about including this point in the book on the whole last section of the book, which is part of the Spiritual Masters series with Warbus Books. I said that from the moment of Hiroshima until the hour of its death, Gandhi called for nuclear disarmament, and therefore part of his spiritual teachings and part of his great lessons for us is that we too have to always be calling for total nuclear disarmament, for the abolition of nuclear weapons, of course, for all weapons of mass destruction and the abolition of war itself, and all the metaphors of death, which would include, well, the death penalty to racism and sexism to the destruction of the environment. But he's saying if you want to be faithful spiritual people, we have to dismantle these weapons because they can destroy us, and the people, the insane people of violence who make them, making them now, are so blind that they will use them. So I encourage us to remember to keep calling for nuclear disarmament. Here's my favorite two quotes. I'll end with these. One is, we are constantly being astonished these days at the amazing discoveries in the field of violence. But I maintain that far more undreamt of and seemingly impossible discoveries will be made in the field of nonviolence. Far more undreamt of impossible Possible discoveries will be made in the field of nonviolence. This gives me a lot of hope. And that's what we're trying to do at Campaign Nonviolence. So we organized a, a movement around the country. Here's another great quote. I'll leave you with this. I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. Anybody can go into total nonviolence like Gandhi, he insisted. And uh, I'd say, let's go for it and try to do that. I wish you every blessing on your journey of nonviolence. And I'll be back on the first of next month with another peace podcast. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Peace be with you. Mm -hmm.